2016 marked the first Christmas that Jill and I spent together as a married couple. And we wanted to start our own tradition as a new family, hoping that it will be passed on to our future children and the generations that followed. But unfortunately, the tradition we chose was purchasing and playing a board game. And we chose the worst possible board game, Monopoly. And by the way, this is the exact box we purchased all those years ago. And it hasn't been opened again since December 25th, 2006. Why might you ask? Because inside this box is an unfinished game that ended early because I am ruthless and, well, Jill got upset. And we stopped playing because our first and only game of Monopoly resulted in a fight. According to Jill, I wasn't very fun to play with. I was mean, smug, and would sacrifice our future children if that meant I got one more boardwalk property. And according to me, if you're not endangering your relationships, you're not playing Monopoly correctly. But anyways, here's the point of the story. I could have finished the game and won, but eventually I realized that winning isn't everything. It's not all that matters, and I was a bit too obsessed with it. We are a culture that is obsessed with winning. We scoff at the idea of participation trophies. We believe that if you're not first, then, well, you're last. And one area where we are particularly caring about winning as Americans, I think, is in politics. And, what makes, and that makes sense because winning politically is not just about the thrill of coming out on top. It's not something shallow like 49ers fans hoping for a sixth Super Bowl trophy because winning in politics is really about the possibility that things can be made right. The one thing that most Americans agree on, regardless of party, is that things aren't right. According to a poll taken just this past November, 76% of Americans believe the country is heading in the wrong direction, which means that most of us are not satisfied with the status quo. I'm pretty sure all of us can admit that things aren't the way they should be. Uh, things should be better. Things can be better. And as Christians, we care about politics because politics impacts the flourishing of all people. And we care about all people because they matter to Jesus. When put this way, it makes sense that as Jesus followers, we want to win. Because ultimately, if we're thinking about politics from the right perspective and mindset, it's not about the politicians, it's not about the party, but it's about loving our neighbors. And generally, we agree on what we want for our neighbors. We agree everyone, because they are made in the image of God, should have access to housing. We agree everyone should have access to health care. We agree everyone should have access to nutritional food and clean water. We agree we need to invest in the next generation. We agree that it's in everyone's best interest to have secure neighborhoods. And yet, even in the church, we are deeply divided over politics. And I think one of the reasons for this is because we agree that the goal of Christ honoring politics is serving our neighbors, but I'm pretty sure we have a lot of disagreements on how exactly to love our neighbors. Uh, put another way, we don't agree on the solutions. 
Now, the danger is not that we don't see eye to eye on every issue, but when we decide that our way of seeing things is the only way to see things, better yet, when we believe our answers to the problems of loving our neighbors is Jesus's answer to the problems. This is what makes Christian political engagement especially toxic. Because it's not just that we think we have better ideas and answers than other people, but we are tempted to believe that Jesus supports our side. And when we believe this, well, then the person who disagrees with us is no longer just someone who disagrees with us. Instead, they become a person who is against Jesus. When our vote and our political opinions are no longer different, incomplete ways to love our neighbor, but instead God's way versus the other way, then it becomes easy to justify any action we might take to win. All of a sudden, it becomes okay to lie about and to our opponents. It becomes okay to slander people who disagree with us. It, it becomes okay to become hostile and violent. It becomes okay to overlook the sin on our side and to focus on whataboutisms. Why? Because we tell ourselves that we are winning for Jesus. And so the ends justify the means. But here's just one problem with that kind of approach. And it's this, Jesus never commanded us to win no less at any cost. Now, you may be thinking, but there's too much at stake. If, if that side wins, then such and such bad things will happen. So surely for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's kingdom, we need to do everything to win in 2024. So let's pause there and say you're right. Let's say if the results don't end up the way you hope that will lead to disaster. Let's, let's go as far as to say that all our worst fears come true. The other side tr wins uh, and they're truly anti-Jesus and democracy dies and corruption abounds and Christians are persecuted everywhere. What would Jesus have to say to us then? If all the worst possible things happen, what would Jesus say? Well, we don't have to wonder what he would say because he already tells us in the Gospel of John what we should do. Now, if you don't remember, John was written during the first century, and guess what? There was no democracy. There was a lot of corruption, and yes, Christians were openly persecuted. And, and there were messianic uh, political groups that wanted to take down Rome by any means necessary. Now, were they wrong to think this way? No, because Rome was objectively oppressive and horrible. But that's what makes Jesus's teaching and example so radical. He didn't instruct his followers uh, to join the parties ready to make war with Rome. Uh, he didn't command his disciples to curse, slander, or bear false witness against their enemies. Instead, he said this. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The part that gets me the most is not the love one another part of the command. If that was all Jesus said, uh, we could call time on this message, go home, and I can just go play Spider-Man 2 and call it a day because if the command was love one another, 
then that is pretty much open to my interpretation of love. And my interpretation is, I love you enough to tell you your solutions are stupid, immoral, and wrong. I, I love you enough to make sure you don't get your way because I know it's not good for anyone. I love you enough to hurt your feelings because what you need is the truth more than my kindness. But Jesus just had to go on and add a qualifier to the command. He adds, love one another as I have loved you. I imagine the disciples would have heard this and started thinking about all the people Jesus loved over the last three years. And as they did this, at one point, they probably realized that Jesus had dinner with a tax collector, a traitor to the Jewish people. Jesus gave dignity to a Samaritan, someone who was considered impure. Jesus healed the servant of a Roman soldier, a person on the empire's bankroll. Jesus washed the feet of Judas, the friend who would betray him. And Jesus even died for his disciples, though they were faithless. If Jesus says, as I have loved you, includes his hospitality towards the traitor, his compassion for the foreigner, his mercy upon the persecutor, and his grace for the backstabber, then the disciples realized there were no exceptions. Everyone the world said they must hate, they must now learn to love. Now, the early Christians were by no means perfect at this, but they did get Jesus' message loud and clear. And how do we know this? Well, in the second century, a Roman lawyer named Pliny the Younger started prosecuting Christians because neighbors didn't like what these strange people were getting up to. And after interrogating them, here is what Pliny discovered. He says this, the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to uh, meeting on a fixed day before dawn and seeing uh, responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, and not falsify their trust, not to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. Accordingly, I judged it even more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Translation, these Christians were causing a disturbance in their communities for the following horrific, God-dishonoring reasons. They met on Sunday mornings to worship together. They sing songs to a man the empire crucified. They committed themselves to not lying to anyone, stealing from anyone, being faithful in their marriages, and being dependable. And the excessive superstitions of which they were guilty of also included fellowshipping with people of different ethnicities, saving abandoned babies from the forest, running towards plague-ridden cities to nurse the sick, taking an obsessive interest in the poor and powerless, and worst of all, note this, a refusal to be loyal to any political leader other than King Jesus. The early Christians were not jailed, beaten, and executed because they were winning for Jesus by any means necessary. Instead, 
they, they faced the wrath and suspicion of the Roman Empire because they did what Jesus commanded. They refused to side with any political party other than the party of King Jesus. Uh, they chose to turn the other cheek and forgave their enemies. They loved the unlovable and the people the world said they were not supposed to love. They chose nonviolence and renounced retaliation, even when they were faced with injustice. And guess what? Uh, these first Christians sure didn't win a lot, but they were faithful to the way of Jesus. And 2,024 years later, the fact that nobody in Rome worshiped Caesar, but plenty of people still worship Jesus, suggests that the early Christians got it right. So my question to us today is this, church, what do we want to be known for? When historians write about Christians in 2024, what will we be charged with? Right now, if we're being honest, the headlines have more to say about which candidates American Christians overwhelmingly support and which policies we are willing to fight for and get mean about. And I can tell you this, if that remains the case for the rest of this year, it won't matter how much we win. Because according to recent polls, more people than ever in this country are open to God. They want more spirituality, more community, and, and, and greater meaning for their lives. But at the same time, their opinion of Jesus' followers could not be any worse. 71% of people have a positive view of Jesus, but just 41% have a positive view of Christians. And in fact, when it comes uh, to non-Christians, according to the Barna Group, 48% describe us as too judgmental. 42% say we are too involved with politics. And just 15% say we consistently love people. And just 11% say we care for the vulnerable. Here's the bottom line I'm getting to. If we sell out to win politically at all costs, we will miss out on welcoming people who desperately need and want Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote or it's wrong to vote, but what I am saying is that people don't want an elephant from the church. People don't want a donkey from the church. They are looking for the Lamb of God. They are thirsting for living water. And the question is, will we bring them into the presence of Jesus by our words and our actions, or will we drive them away? So as we close today, I want to challenge us, Rainier View Christian Church, to try to do these two things as we go about the rest of the series and as we go about the rest of this year. First, take a moment to reflect on how have you engaged in politics? And ask yourself this, have I been driven by a desire to love as Jesus loves or merely to win? Am I more concerned about being faithful to the way of Jesus or am I more fearful of what could happen if things don't go my way. And secondly, can we make a commitment for the rest of this year to be first and foremost about Jesus's party? At the end of the day, we are not red Christians or blue Christians, but Christians bought and redeemed by King Jesus. And king is not just a spiritual category, but it's a political category. That means loyalty to Jesus, Loyalty to his ways, his policies, his party must take precedence over our partisan commitments. We need to love each other as Jesus loved us. 
We need to set aside political loyalties if that is the cost of drawing more people to Jesus. Also, we need to make a commitment to one another that no matter what happens this year, we at RBCC are going to stick together and work together and care for one another. Because if we belong to Jesus, according to the Bible, we are on the same team, we are in the same family, and the world is watching what this family is going to do next. So let's commit ourselves to loving one another and show Pierce County this year what it looks like to choose following Jesus over winning for Jesus.